0: What does Sunday have to do with Monday? What does Sunday have to do with Monday? Or to use the words of one woman visiting here a few years ago, why does this even matter? Is perhaps a question you've asked at different points in your life. As you've, you've sensed a disconnect between content you've received and its usefulness for real life. I mean, young people, how often have you sat in math class or been doing math homework, maybe perhaps especially algebra or geometry, and thought to yourself, this is absolutely pointless. I will never use this in the real world or maybe at your job, those hours long mandatory training sessions have you doodling on your notepad the entire duration and staring at the clock aimlessly as you think 90% of what's being shared has absolutely nothing to do with my actual duties. Maybe that's your mindset when you board an airplane. And the flight attendant is going through all the motions and giving the, the entire spiel about what to do in case of a crash or emergency landing. You put in your AirPods and put out of your mind any possible instance in which the information being shared is actually useful to you. Maybe that's how you feel on Sunday mornings. Maybe that's how you feel this morning with all this meticulous talk about God and the Bible, in songs and in scripture readings, and now in a sermon, you don't totally discredit it as garbage, but maybe you're tempted to dismiss it as irrelevant. A failing to see how it connects to the issues you'll face tomorrow at work. A failing to see how All this talk about God connects to all the problems that you'll face this afternoon when you return home, how it all connects to the burdens and concerns you're carrying around in your heart right now. Well, one of the things our passage this morning teaches us, one of the things the entire book of Job that we've been studying teaches us is that what you believe about God really matters for life. And it really matters most when problems in life are most prevalent, either personally or in the lives of those around you. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to the book of Job and to chapter 15. Now in your bulletins, we have that we'll be going through Job chapter 26 this morning. Uh, but in preparing for this sermon, I decided to call it an audible, and we'll actually only work through chapter 21 this morning, which kind of gives a more natural break. That may or may not mean the sermon will be shorter than last week. <laughs> if you weren't here last week, you have no place of reference, so you just have nowhere, no idea where I'm going with this one, right? So um, this morning we'll cover 15 through 21, Job chapter 15 through 21. Just a brief kind of overview of the structure of the book of Job. Uh, chapters one and two present a kind of prologue where we're introduced to the main character Job and we're told of his blameless and upright character. And we're introduced in, in those first two chapters to the kind of plot line of the entire book where, where God gives Satan freedom to afflict Job's body and take away all Job's possessions as the Lord tests Job and proves that Job's loyalty to God isn't just for the sake of stuff, but for the sake of God himself was well, intrinsic beauty and his intrinsic glory. By the end of chapter two, we covered this last week, a little bit of recap. Job has lost nearly everything, but is still holding firm to faith in God and trusting him, even as his friends come to comfort him at the end of the chapter. In chapter three, Job has a kind of long prayer of lament, bemoaning his suffering. And then where we started last week in chapter four, And stretching all the way to chapter 26, if you just look at your Bibles 4 through 26, the bulk of this book, right, has Job in kind of three rounds of conversations, of dialogues and speeches with his three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. So chapter 4, chapters 4 through 14, where we were last week, is round one. And you notice the structure, You, you, you get a speech by Eliphaz and then a response by Job. A speech by Bildad and then a response by Job. Uh, a speech by Zophar and then a response by Job. And our passage this morning, in chapters 15 through 21, we see round two with the same structure. Eliphaz, reply by Job. Bildad, reply by Job. Zophar, reply by Job. And then next week we'll cover round three of this kind of theological, intellectual, philosophical bouts between seemingly heavyweights, (laughs) but we see that one group is not really punching up to their weight. What you see in these chapters this morning and next week is that Job's friends keep speaking, but keep saying the same old things. The only thing that grows is their frustration with Job while we see in Job's retorts and Job's replies that what's growing in him, even along with his growing misery, is his faith is growing in God through trials. And because much of the content repeats the same things as last week and much of next week repeat the same things, the main idea for this morning's sermon is the same main idea from last week's sermon because we're still in this kind of same chunk content of scripture. This is the main idea I think we see in In Job chapters 15 through 21, bad doctrine misrepresented as truth and good doctrine that's misapplied both bring more misery to sufferers. Bad doctrine that's misrepresented as truth and good doctrine that's misapplied, well, those two things both combine to bring more misery to sufferers. As we walk through this Passes this morning, these uh, seven chapters, we learned, I think, three things I want to kind of center our thoughts on, three points to the sermon. Number one, we learned that theological convictions die hard. Theological convictions die hard. We'll mainly see that in chapter 15. You see it, right? We'll focus on chapter 15 for that one. Number two, we learned that suffering and vindication come from God suffering and vindication come from God. We see that in chapters 16 through 19. And third, we learn you can't assume someone's spiritual state from their present circumstances. We see that in uh, chapters 20 through 21. You can't assume someone's spiritual state from their present circumstances. Number one, theological convictions die hard. You might say, well, that's a good thing. (laughs) I mean, we want to have firm convictions that stand strong and don't waver in the face of opposition. Well, yes, that's true. If those theological convictions are true and good convictions. But, you know, we can have faulty theological convictions that lead us to faulty assumptions and false accusations against faithful brothers and sisters. Let me say that again. We can have faulty theological convictions that lead us to faulty assumptions and false accusations against faithful brothers and sisters. You see, we're all theologians. The only question is, are we good theologians or not? All right. In Job's friends, we see some good and some bad theology at play that influences how they respond to Job. In other words, what they've learned on Sunday affects how they act on Monday towards their friend. Your doctrine, your theological convictions shape and influence how you respond to all kinds of circumstances in life. And the major theological conviction that Job's friends display is that God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. Now, is that a good theological conviction or not? It depends. That's right. It does depend. Right. First, we have to say it it is a good conviction. I mean, Job's friends are not disenchanted deconstructionists who've written off God as unfair or unjust. No, the God of Job's friends is incredibly just and fair in their worldview. He is good. He cherishes and rewards those who follow him, and he judges those who rebel against him. I mean, that's God's testimony about himself throughout the Bible. In Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God presents himself as a wonderful and present God and friend to Adam and Eve if they obey him. But he presents himself as a terrible judge if they commit treason and break his commands. In giving the law in books like Deuteronomy, God promises blessings upon blessing upon blessing from your bedroom to the field for those who keep his word and obey his voice. But horrible curses if his people deny him and live as if he didn't exist. There's sound theological basis for Job's friend's claims. The problem is that their theology is pretty wooden. Right. Pretty straightforward. It's, it's one dimensional. It's not fully developed. They don't account for the fact that the righteous are not always rewarded in this life and the wicked are not always judged in this life. And they have absolutely no concept for things the Bible presents, such as the righteous actually suffering from God's hands, but not because of their sin or rebellion but rather because of God's own good purposes that he does not always reveal. Job's been trying to argue something of that to his friends in his suffering, but they want none of that. Their theological convictions are their theological convictions. They are what they are, and they will not budge. I mean, that's what we see here. As you look at chapter 15, after the first Round of debates have concluded, and Job has pleaded his case that he is suffering, but not because of his sin. He's actually blameless, he keeps saying. Eliphaz says, we call cap. You are lying. We don't believe you, Job. Uh, Job chapter 15, verse 2. Eliphaz, Bildad's earlier taunt uh, and basically calls Job a windbag. His answers have been filled with windy knowledge. You ain't doing nothing but blowing the hot air from the east wind, Job. That's like ancient, like trash talk, you yeah? His speech is not wise. It's unprofitable. And actually, your speech is dangerous, Job. Why is Job's speech dangerous? Well, because verse 4, Job is doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation with him the way Job is talking his manner of direct raw speech to God and the content of his words continually claiming that he's blameless and yet God has brought him affliction it shows a lack of reverence for God and even more dangerous it seemingly promotes a lack of reverence for God to others I mean if Job's words are true that the innocent, the righteous suffer just as much and maybe even more than the wicked, then why would anyone want to be righteous? What motivation would people have to be holy if the holy hurt just as much as the heathen? One commentator compares Eliphaz and his friend's concerns to those the apostle Paul faced from religious folks who thought that Paul's emphasis on God's free grace would undermine any incentives to holy living they claimed if if a good life does not earn God's favor then people would conclude then why not do evil that good may come in Eliphaz's mind that's the dangerous doctrine that Job is promoting in saying that blameless Good, God-fearing Sunday school and Sunday service attending folks, religious folks, and claiming that they suffer terribly even. Mm. Job is turning people away from living for God. I mean, who would sign up for that if all that gets them is this kind of suffering? Mm. No, 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 no. Much better to stick to what we know. All right. A good old one-to-one system. People suffer because they sin. Wherever you see suffering, you can trace it back and find sin. Wherever you see prospering, you can trace it back and find godliness. It's the theological system that many of us hold to as well, even if secretly. Your marriage is falling apart. Your children are falling away. Your relationships are crumbling. Your body is failing, and your first instinct is What did I do wrong? There's little room for the reality that the righteous endure severe suffering. Eliphaz tells Job in in verse 5, it's his iniquity that's deep inside of him that informs and instructs his mouth to say wrong things. Impious things like that he's experiencing unjust suffering from God. And he accuses Job of arrogance to keep on suggesting that. He asks in verse 7, were you the first man ever born? Are you the oldest one in all creation who knows everything? Verse 8, have you listened in on the counsel of God and do you limit wisdom to yourself? The answer, of course, is no. Job has not listened in on the counsel of God, but neither has Anaphaz. <laughs> You know who's listened in on the counsel of God? We have. The readers of this book. In chapters 1 and 2, we've been given behind-the-scenes access to the counsel of God to know his ways and thoughts. And we've heard directly from God what Eliphaz keeps condemning Job for. We've heard God himself say that Job is blameless and upright a God-fearing man who turns away from evil. We've heard God himself tell Satan that he incited him to destroy Job without reason. Job isn't being prideful or lying and insisting on his innocence. Job is being truthful. But his speech doesn't match Eliphaz and his friend's theological system, and so Job must be wrong and Eliphaz must be right. Job must be arrogant, and Eliphaz must be the humble servant of the Lord. Now, he reversed back to the same line of reasoning that he, he had in his first speech in chapter 4. If you look down at verses 14 through 16, we see an almost verbatim repetition of what Eliphaz said earlier in chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born a woman that he can be righteous? God puts no trust in his holy ones, how much less, and in chapter 4, he said, how much less those who live in clay houses and come from dust. But here in verse 16, he's even more contentious. How much less does God trust one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water? Job is not named, but Job is implied. You are the abominable, corrupt man. You are not and cannot be right with God. Nobody can. Now again, there's some truth in that. Mankind in and of themselves, we are by nature corrupt. We are by nature abominable. We are stained in sin, all of us separated from God, and nobody naturally righteous in his sight. But Job has shown himself as someone who has recognized his sin and who turns from it. The book, he's telling us that Job turns away from evil. Job repents. I mean, he's regarded his sin and his family's sins as serious in this book. And he's dealt with them by offering sacrifice to atone for them, which is the old way that God set up for sinners to be made right with God. Anticipating a future once for all sacrifice where Jesus would lay down his life to make sinners right with God. Job has never claimed sinlessness, but blamelessness. There's no open, unresolved, unrepented sin in his life that's causing his suffering. Eliphaz claims there must be. I mean, look at your suffering. Only the wicked suffer that way. And he closes chapter 15 showing that to be true, showing that reality to be true by detailing the plight of the wicked. Right? He says, J- Job, look at what happens to the wicked, right? Verse 20, the wicked writhes in pain all his days. Are you writhing in pain, Job? Well, then you make the connection. In verse 21, in prosperity, the destroyer comes upon the wicked. Did the Chaldeans and the Sabians come upon you in your prosperity, Job, and destroy your crops and cattle? Then you make the connection. If you're having a hard time making the connection, let me help you out, Job. Why do these things come upon the wicked? Verse 25, because he has stretched out his hand against God the Almighty. Verse 27, because he has covered his face with fat, because he has lived self indulgently. Therefore, verse 29, he will not be rich, his wealth will not endure, nor will his possession spread over the earth. Sound familiar, Job? These things happen to wicked people. And if they've happened to you, there's only one explanation. You must be wicked in some way. Eliphaz holds that conviction tightly. But notice where Eliphaz got it from. Verse 18, from other wise men who've told it to him. Right? What wise men have told me, I will not hide from you. Right? It's it's, it's a wise tradition that's been passed on for generations and nothing apart from that tradition can possibly be true. It's amazing how tradition can transform into unalterable theological truth. I mean, it's one of the the things that Jesus condemned the Pharisees for teaching as doctrine, the, the traditions of men. And in doing so, breaking the actual commandments of God. And friends, that's why we need to be sure that we get what we believe about God and about how God works from God himself. Not from God mixed with traditional practices, mixed with cultural norms, mixed with subjective feelings. That's why on Sunday mornings we spend hours with our Bibles open Preaching through the Bible and not just picking from the Bible. We want to know the mind of God, not just assume that we know it. And where God's word counters our assumptions, where God's word counters our convictions, we need to have the humility to change. That happens as you study God's word. Uh, That happens as others teach you God's word, either formally or informally. I mean, God has gifted the church with pastors to instruct congregations, with the goal of having our minds renewed day by day, week by week, year by year after his image. But God has also gifted churches with other church members to be like Priscilla and Aquila, who, who pulled aside young bold zealous theologically minded apollos and the bible tells us explain the way of god to him more accurately i want to do you have the humility to have someone explain god's ways to you more accurately or are you sure that you are right about god's ways that you are right about God's works and you are right about what God absolutely wants. You know, when that kind of attitude most gets exhibited in us, often when there's some kind of suffering we want to avoid or escape or explain away. And so we say things, theological things, theological statements like God would want me to suffer. God wouldn't want me not to be happy. God wouldn't want me to stay in his predicament. I mean, I haven't done anything wrong. Only people who do something wrong deserve this kind of life. You surely speak for God, or do you? Eliphaz and his friends have firm beliefs, but they are not all right. And yet you'll see they keep talking, they keep rebutting, They will not change their minds or consider that they might be wrong for one minute. They will not humble themselves to be helped by Job because so sure are they that they are right and only out to help him. But they prove to be no help. And yet it's Job whom God is actually using to help them and to help us more accurately see how he works, to more accurately see his ways. Which brings us to the second observation we see in this passage, that suffering and vindication come from God. Point number two, suffering and vindication come from God. In Job chapter 16, verse two, Job just goes ahead and makes the point that's been obvious to us readers and now just makes it super obvious to his friends. Y'all are some miserable comforters. I mean, y'all are miserable. Oh my gosh. I mean, the irony is, that's what they've come to do. At the end of chapter two and verse 11, we read that these three friends each came from their own countries to, quote, show Job sympathy and comfort him. Well, Job says, y'all get an F at comforting. While y'all got an A at condemning. Y'all are miserable comforters. Sadly, that that describes us sometimes, doesn't it? We might be incredibly articulate theologians, but often how we use that theology makes us miserable comforters. In verses 4 and 5, Job puts himself in his friend's place and says, I could speak as you do if you were in my place, if you were the one suffering. I could join words against you and deride you as you've done to me. Or verse five, I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. This is what Job's friends should have done. I think we see here the amazing impact our words can have either positively or negatively. We can use our words to tear down or to build up. And one passage that comes to mind that we ought to adhere to and pray the Lord to help us to obey is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. The apostle Paul commands us, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Oh, that Job's friends had such words for Job. Oh, that we'd have such words that build up and give grace to those who hear us. In any case, Job goes on to make his point to Eliphaz and the others. The the, the claim is that Job's sin has brought on his suffering. Job says, no, it's God who is the sole cause of my suffering. It's not something specifically sinful that I've done. Rather, he alone has brought this to me for reasons I do not know. I mean, look there at all the references to God as the cause behind Job's calamities in verses 7 through 14. Verse 7, surely now God has worn me out. Verse 8, he has shriveled me up. Verse 9, he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. That's how Job feels, like God is against him. Like God hates him. We know from the prologue that's not true, but God's silence leads Job to this skewed perception. Verse 11, God gives me up to the ungodly. He casts me into the hands of the wicked. Verse 12, he broke me apart. Uh, Verse 13, he slashes open my kidneys. He pours out my gall. Verse 14, he breaks me with breach upon breach. Job has what we call big God theology. And some of us claim to have big God theology, But when suffering comes, right, we presume that what's happening to us that's wrong or painful somehow comes from some other source. No, Job sees God as absolutely sovereign over everything, even suffering. Even over his innocent suffering. You might balk at that, maybe even just internally. I mean, we like to associate God with good, not with bad. We like to associate God with pleasantness and not with pain. But God here is using Job's words and Job's wounds to set the stage for another innocent sufferer whose suffering God was ultimately behind. I mean, notice how some of the language here not only is an accurate description of what Job is going through, but also foreshadows what the ultimate sufferer who was altogether innocent and sinless, Jesus Christ, what he went through. I mean, in verse 9, Job felt like God's enemy enduring his wrath. On the, crack, on the cross, Jesus really did endure God's wrath. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. In verse 10, Job talks about men gaping their mouths at him and in horror and striking him on the cheek. For Job, it amounted to verbal attacks. But in Matthew chapter 26 Verses 67 through 68, we read of Jesus being physically attacked as men literally kept slapping him in his face over and over again. In verse 11, Job says, God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Our initial religious response is God would never do that. God protects his own. But in Matthew chapter 26, verse 25 Jesus said that he was betrayed into the hands of sinners. Yes, by Judas, but ultimately by God. The apostle Peter says in Acts chapter two, verse 23, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. God gave his son up to be killed for us all, for all of us who would trust in him. The the shock. Of Job's suffering and his insistence on it being for no particular sin of his but owing to God's plans sets us up for the shock of the cross. Where Jesus Christ suffered and died not for anything he'd done wrong but for all that we'd done wrong. There was no guilt within him yet he willingly laid down his life and died for us so that we might be saved. He rose from the grave three days later, showing that his sacrifice was accepted and now demands all of us to turn from our sins and trust in him that we might have eternal life and be saved. Job doesn't see that far ahead, but he trusts that his suffering is not for his own sin and trusts that one day he will be vindicated. Let me look there at verses 15 and 16. Job again grieves and gives us a a, a a peek at all his agony. A sorrow and grief are so constant that Job sews the garment of grief, sackcloth to his body to, to stay there permanently. Right? People in the scriptures also often put on sackcloth and, and take off sackcloth when the, the grieving is over. Job says, This grieving, this suffering is so constant, I've had to staple the sackcloth to my body. His face, he says. Is red with weeping in verse 16. The circles around his eyes are dark from constant crying and sleepless nights. Although, verse 17, he is innocent. There is no violence in his hands. His prayer is pure. His friends disbelieve him. They say that Job is suffering as an unforgiven sinner. Where does Job look for vindications? Well, he can't get it from his friends, so Job turns to God. In verse 18, he prays that as he seemingly nears death, that his blood would even cry up from the ground like, like Cain's blood cried from the ground and, and reached God's ears in Genesis 4. Well, even so, Lord, let my suffering reach God's ears somehow. For behold, verse 19, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. Job trusts that God will speak on my behalf and God will clear my name. It's the same thought Job has in chapter 17. And drop down to verses 3-5 where he prays that God will lay down a pledge for him. Put up a security for him with God. It's amazing here. Job pleads for God to take up his case. With God. You see, it's only God who can ultimately judge if Job is truly in the right or not. And it's only God whose plea is strong enough to argue with God. Friends, it's an amazing slice of the picture of the gospel where God pleads our case before God. Where God the Son, Jesus Christ, pleads for us before God the Father as our mediator. He Lays down a pledge for us. He puts up a security for us. He makes a payment for our debt, giving his own life to guarantee our vindication, even over against Satan's accusations and anybody else's charges. With assurance, with assurance of God's vindication, Job is able to press on. Even as he's been made a byword, in verse 6 he says, of the people's. Even as they continually despise him. In verse 9 he says he holds to his way and grows stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Let them say what they may. I grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And so he challenges all his friends in verse 10. Come on. Come on again. Come at me all of you. For one or two or ten more rounds I still would not find not one wise word among you. Because the all-wise God speaks for me. You say, you got to get to a point in your Christian walk where your confidence is not based on people and what they say about you. You got to get to a place where you say, the Lord himself testifies about me. So I don't care what nobody else says. I'm trusting in the Lord's call over my life. And what does the Lord say? The Lord says, he or she is mine. I have purchased them by my son's precious blood. And the one that I have brought in, I will by no means cast away. You got to trust that when everybody else is against you. Right? Many of us say we got haters. A few of us actually have had those. Many of us have have experienced friends, people we love, turning away from us. We have not experienced it to the point of Job. And yet Job, even with the intense uh, accusations and insults from his friends, is saying, at the end of the day, I'm clinging to the Lord. He's given us a picture of what we must do, a posture of what we must hold when everybody seems to turn away from us, even those closest to us. God has to speak for us. You see in this passage, right? As you go on through all these chapters, Job is kind of like a, a seesaw. Some, some, some chapters he's up, sometimes he's down, right? Yeah, you're like, this man is nuts a little bit. Right. But but what you see constantly a little bit, even as he mourns and grieves and and laments. Right. What you see growing is his confidence in God and his faith. So when we were in chapter three, that super dark chapter that like really irritated you. Understand that all of Job is in chapter three. You see that man working out of that kind of deep darkness and clinging to the sight of God through it all. His confidence is growing. His faith is growing. But while his faith and confidence in God is growing, what else is growing? His friend, his suffering, no doubt, right? Sweet, right? But also his friend's defiance. As Job grows more confident in God, they get more agitated, right? They can't believe he, why are you? Okay, we're going to shut you down, right? Uh, look at verse 18 or, or chapter 18. Build that in verse 2. <laughs> As Job was like, hey, we like rejoicing, like Job was growing in confidence. Bildad asked in verse two, how long are you going to keep talking? How long will you hunt for words? Bildad is like, this is nonsense. You're just trying to say anything, Job. You know, oh yeah, God, you know, I'm growing closer and stronger in God. My witnesses is in God. What? No, it's not. You're just trying to say anything out of your suffering to shut us up. Would you shut up, Job? Stop hunting for words. Stop speaking and let us speak. Buildad asks in verse three, "Why do you consider us to be stupid in your sight?" That's what you're in is doing in claiming to be an innocent sufferer. I mean, who's ever heard of such a thing? And in claiming that we're in the wrong, you insult us. For Buildad, maintaining his reputation as a wise man is more important than caring for his wounded friend and his suffering. And so, for Buildad, he got to keep on speaking. I must speak up to to justify who I am in, in my wisdom. He says in, in verse 4, in essence, Job, we know the regular course of things. You sin, you suffer. Right, earlier in chapter 16, verse 9, Job said God was tearing him to pieces. The Buddha says you tear yourself up with your rage-filled words. you bringing this on yourself, acting all emotional, talking all crazy. I mean shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? In other words, should the universe be rearranged all of a sudden to suit you and to suit your paradigm of undeserved suffering? Uh, One commentator puts it this way. uh, To ask God to bless a sinner like Job is like asking God to move mountains around just for him. So that uniquely in Job's special case, an exception might be made. And Bildad is like, get over yourself, Job. And then Bildad launches into a long diatribe from verses 5 through the end of chapter 18 of what happens to the wicked. With the worn out implication that Job is wicked, has some hidden wickedness that's led to his demise. Verse 5 Of chapter 18, Bildad says the light of the wicked is put out. Verse 8, he is cast into a net by his own feet. Verses 12 and 13, his strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. Uh, The the firstborn of death, which is probably a reference to, to disease, consumes his limbs. Verse 17, his memory perishes from the earth. Verse 18, he thrusts from light to darkness. Verse 19, he has no posterity or progeny among his people, which is a biting remark to Job who has no posterity, no progeny, no offspring left. All his children are gone. Verse 21, such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, Job. Such is the place of him who knows not God. And if all this suffering describes your situation, Job, it must be because you are unrighteous and you don't know God at all. Again, it's a common refrain we constantly hear from all of Job's friends. <laughs> hey, with friends like these, who needs enemies, right? <laughs> and again, there's some truthfulness in these friends' words. There's some good doctrine here. What's good doctrine here? Well, chapter 18 is a good doctrinal analysis of what hell is like. A place where verse 11, terrors threaten its inhabitants on every side. Where verse 15, sulfur and fire are scattered over the wicked's habitation. A place, verse 19, where a person is driven out from the world into utter darkness. Darkness. I mean, this is where the wicked end up. We need not write off everything Job's friends say. Friends, this is where you will end up in your wickedness. So if you are still in your sins, you must not write off what Bildad describes here. Hell is a horrible place where the light of God's face, which in this life shines on the good and the unjust, goes completely dark, where there are unending and inescapable punishments. If you think Bildad to be an unreliable source to speak the truth on the subject, well, consider Jesus' words. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, describes hell as a place of outer darkness. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, he says, hell is a place with unquenchable fire. It's a place of unending torment. What Jesus says in Mark 9, 47 and 48, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Sinners suffer miserably forever. Bildad's words only scratch the surface of Jesus' words about the place and the fate of of the wicked. Where they differ, however, rather drastically, is when the wicked will experience these things. For Jesus, it's in the next life, in the afterlife. For Bildad it's now. So in Bildad's kind of paradigm, in his worldview, whenever you see a person experiencing what we might term hell on earth, there's only one conclusion to come to. The wicked is being judged by God. But another key difference between Bildad and Jesus is this, that for Bildad, this fate of the wicked is settled and locked in. And you see that here? He leaves Job with no hope. All he says, he makes the implication, Job, you are wicked, and this is what's going to happen to the wicked. There's no possible reversal. Verse 21, surely set are the dwellings of the righteous, uh, the unrighteous. None can change it. But when Jesus lays out the horrors of the fate of the wicked, he also holds out hope through faith in him. All right. All right. Jesus has absolutely no reservations sharing about the darkness of hell. But he points people to repent and to trust in him, the light of the world who for us and in our place endured all the torments of hell, all the darkness of God's judgment on the cross, dying in our place so that all those who turn from sins and trust in him might not die and go to hell, but be risen, be forgiven, be vindicated to live forever with the Lord. Bildad wrongly paints Job as a wicked man. And worse... He leaves Job there with no chance of vindication or acquittal. I wonder how much of our counsel is like Bildad's. How often do we pound people into the darkness, but don't point them to the lights? Friends, I wonder if there are any relationships in your life where you, in essence, echo the words of Bildad. Basically saying to people, you made your bed, now lie in it. Get what you deserve. I wonder, is that your attitude, is that your mindset to your father here on Father's Day? He was absent throughout most of your life. He did so many wrong and hurtful things to you and so he deserves to be shut out of your life now he deserves to be kept in the darkness now for what's going on in your world are there other relationships in which you've basically written people off and don't care what happens to them have you in essence condemned and consigned them to hell even if it's just your own personal version of hell because of how they wronged or offended you. And once you've placed them there, there is no escaping. There's nothing they can do or say to get out of the pit. Bildad is supposed to be Job's friend. But because of what Job has said, because of Job's insistence on his innocence and because he's ticked Bildad off and frustrated him, Bildad has given up on Job, basically saying, I don't care what happens to you. Go to hell, Job. Friends, that's the posture of the devil. That's not the posture of God. Even when we had actually rebelled against God, he cared about what happened to us. He cared about our fates. And so he moved towards us in compassion and offered us hope. That's the posture, as hard as it might be, that as godly people, as Christians, we must have as well. If that's not your posture, if that's not your heart this morning, it's okay to be honest about that. It's not okay to stay there, though. Pray if the Lord, even starting right now, would move your heart to care for the well-being of those even who've offended you. To care for their eternal well-being and even to care for them now. Don't put them in your own personal pit of hell and leave them there locked away. If God could forgive us right. of unfathomable, innumerable sins for what we've done to Him, is there really anything that anyone could possibly do to us that would deserve our unflinching, unchanging judgment of them? Bill adds words only place Job in the pits and don't offer him any glimpse of redemption, of restoration, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. That's not what the gospel does. And as gospel people, we want to model what the gospel does. It reconciles even sinners to a holy God. How much more can it reconcile us to one another? Be able verse to torment Job even more than his physical suffering. If you look at, into Job chapter 19, verse 2, Job acknowledges that. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words, he says in verse 2. How long will, will you continue to talk and not be ashamed at wronging me, he says in verse 3. And Job, again, recounts the, the suffering that he's experiencing from the hand of God. Starting in verse 7, and especially the suffering of being a social outcast in verses 13 through 19. Verse 13, he says, God has put his brothers far away from him. Verse 14, his relatives have failed him. And his close friends, they've forgotten him. Verse 15, the guests in his house and servants count him as strangers. and verse 17, even my breath is strange to my own wife. I'm a stench to the mother of my children. Verse 18, young children despise me. Verse 19, all my intimate friends abhor me. So Job cries out in the kind of last plea in verse 21, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. But these friends don't have any mercy. They instead heap on more and more misery and so where must Job turn to find hope again only to God feeling near death and fearing that his friend's words would win the day after he dies as they would boast that oh wicked Job got what he deserved Job cries out in chapter 19 verse 23 oh that my words were written oh that They were, my my words were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever to testify of my vindication and my confidence in being vindicated. And friends, see here just how good and mysterious are God's ways. Job's words have been preserved forever for us in this book of Job. Thousands of years after he wrote this book, God vindicates his servants. Amen. And Job has confidence. He didn't see like my words that I'm crying out right now going to be written in the book. And that Christians in Temple Hills in 2023 going to be looking back at Job and saying Job was an innocent sufferer. He had no clue, but that's how suffering is. You have no idea what God will do. He don't show you all the things, right? As one old song just said, you know, Uh, one step is enough for me, right? I don't need to see everything. One step, right, is enough for me. Uh, Oftentimes we want all the steps, right? We can really endure suffering if God lays out the entire plan. Well, God said, if I laid out the entire plan, then you wouldn't trust me. You'll be trusting in the steps, right? We like the little steps. Don't you do X, Y, Z, and then you will live to a happy life. No, God said, you got A, and you trust me from B to Z, right? Job couldn't see what was going on. This man just cried out, oh, that, that, that my words, that, that my side would be vindicated, that someone would speak for me. And as we see often in this book, he speaks better than he knows. Here we got a, a book that talks about Job and his innocent suffering. And Job has confidence that it's going to be the case, that he's going to be vindicated. I mean, he says amazingly in the, in the next verse, right? Uh, for I know, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold him and not another. It's an amazing display of faith. I mean, because Job lives At a time where there's not a super developed doctrinal understanding of the resurrection. But Job knows some stuff. You you see all those knows, right? That's what faith is. Faith in arrogance. A lot of unbelievers or people with kind of, you know, respectable theology, they get irritated when Christians talk about knowing something, right? You know you're going to heaven. Oh, that's prideful of you. You know God's going to save you. That's prideful of you. You know you're going to be vindicated. That's prideful of you. No, Christianity knows some things because God shows some things, right? God tells us who he is, and we trust in his character, right? That's why Abraham could march his son up to the altar, right? He didn't see everything, but he knew some things, right? That's why Abraham could trust God through all of life because Abraham knew some things. Shall the God of the earth not do what is right? Right? You, you got to know some things about God because God has shown himself through all of life to be a good and just God. And so Job, although he can't see it all laid out, he knows some stuff because he knows the Lord. And here he is clinging to the Lord. I know. I know. Right. What does he know? He, he knows, one, that God is a redeemer. This <laughs> God saves. He didn't crush Adam and Eve immediately. He redeemed them even. Right, He clothed them when they were naked. He killed the, the, the animal to clothe them. It was a picture of what God does to cover his people. Something dies so that we can live. He, he knows that God is a redeemer and he knows that God ever lives. Right, He forever lives. I know that my redeemer lives. And Job knows that this God will stand upon the earth one day. Right, The, the God who is unseen and is in the heavenly realms will, will someday be before me. And, and look at this, and Job knows, with really a kind of absurd confidence, really, right? Sometimes in sports where you got, you know, somebody's like jacking up shots from half court, right, because they hide. It's like you got irrational confidence right now. Job seemingly has some irrational confidence looking at his circumstances. Job knows with a kind of bold, stubborn faith and confidence that even as his body is tattered to ashes, and is decaying daily before him. Job says that after this old skin is destroyed. Yet in a body. Yes. In my body. In my flesh I shall see God. <laughs> Bildad said Job's end. The wicked's end is the end. When you gone, you gone. Nobody talk about you no more. You're done. There's no hope for wicked when his lights go out he passes from this world into utter darkness where there's no more mention of him job says that might be the wicked's fate but that ain't my fate because i ain't a wicked man after i die i'm going to rise again and see god for myself i'm going to be resurrected and be vindicated showing that my suffering was not for my sin again it points us to jesus His opponent said he was a wicked man and he was put to death for his supposed wickedness. After which he was buried in a dark tomb with many claiming that he be in the darkness of the grave forever and soon be long forgotten. But on the third day after his death, Jesus got up from the grave being vindicated by the spirit, the Bible tells us as being the true son of God, the sinless savior, showing that he was the true son of God and the sinless savior by stomping over death in the grave. It's the hope that Job faintly pointed pointed to through faith. And it's the hope that we forever have in Christ through faith. Even as we suffer horribly today, it's the certainty of that future hope That allows us to endure severe suffering today, even unjustly, in horrible marriages. Or in hard job situations. Or in hostile relationships with family members and friends where they falsely call you and accuse you of all kinds of things. You and I can persevere through all that pain. We don't have to dismiss it. It is painful. It is suffering. We can persevere through all that pain with real hope. Not seeking to just alleviate our suffering or to fight back against it, but trusting that one day God will vindicate us. We can trust that because of the resurrection of Christ. That resurrection will be ours too one day. Suffering comes from God, but so also will vindication for those who continue to trust in him. Third and lastly, and more shortly, what we see from this text is that you can't simply assume someone's spiritual state from their present circumstances. It's kind of ongoing thing we say: You can't assume someone's spiritual state from their present circumstances. In chapter 20, that's basically Zophar's argument. He says, in essence, that the wicked often start off prosperous. They seem to have everything at first, but then all their stuff and their status will be snatched. He says in chapter 20, verse five, that that it's a well-known fact that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless is but for a moment. Though his height reaches to the heavens, he will perish forever. Verse 11, his bones are once full of youthful vigor, but will ultimately lie down in the dust. Job started off great. He had it all. His height, his greatness reached to the heavens. I mean, even God testified about this man. He once had great vigor, but now he lies down and sits in ashes. Job's loss of everything is what's really indicative of who Job really is. Not good and righteous, but wicked. We'll build that going on in verse 19. Accusing Job of specific acts of wickedness, right? He's enduring all these things because he cursed and abandoned the poor. And verse 20, because he wasn't content with what he had, but rather was a greedy man. It's the same tried and, and trusted to be true reality all Job's friends share. Sin always leads to suffering and judgment. Sin always leads to suffering and judgment. But in his last rebuttal in the second round, Job again pokes a hole in that seeming airtight argument. In chapter 21, he shows that the wicked often live the good life that starts well and ends well. In verse 7, he says, the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power. Well, why, he asks, why is that, so far if your supposed system always works? Verse 9, their houses are safe from fear. No trouble reaches them. They never hear bad news. Verse 10, their flocks are full and multiply. Verses 11 and 12, their children are full of joy, and they go around singing happy songs. Verse 13, they they spend their days in prosperity, although they are outwardly wicked and rebellious. I mean, look at verse 14. Job says, They say openly to God, depart from us. We don't desire the knowledge of your ways. Who are you? Who is the almighty that we should serve or pray to him? Get out of here, God. And how does God respond? He prospers them still. But you, my friends, say God prospers the righteous. Here, the outwardly unrighteous are outwardly prosperous. Job continues in verse 17, how often is, is the wicked's lamp put out? How often is it that calamity comes upon them or that God sends pain their way? The answer, not often. When you look at the world, the wicked are having a wonderful time, <laughs> right? Goodness, man, they, need, that social media posts look good, don't they? They're doing all kinds of things. Their bank accounts looking large, they traveling the world. I mean, you know, they, they're doing everything right, then makes it seem like everything is all right. Verse 19, if you, if you say to me, Joe claims, not know if he, he covers all the bases, but if you say, well, judgment will come later on to their children, why would God wait till then? And how would that really affect wicked people? I mean, the ungodly only care for themselves. don't care, okay, judgment will come to my kids, cool, don't come to me, you know? The the point is, you cannot predict one's spiritual standing based on suffering or success in this life, on on present circumstances. The wicked often live a wonderful life and die in good old age comfortably, while the righteous live a wretched life and die miserably. The system of Job's friends is too simplistic. Their wisdom is too simplistic for the all-wise God. So, Job asks in verse 22 Will you teach even God knowledge? Will you teach God about his ways with your all too neat sin leads to suffering formula? Even when God continually shows you otherwise in this life? The system is too weak to counsel God, and the system is too weak to comfort Job. So, Job concludes in verse 34. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? (laughs) That's his summation of all their words, all their thoughts, all their wisdom. After two whole rounds, empty nothings. They've said a lot, but they haven't said much to really help a sufferer. Pointing the present circumstance to gauge godliness is a horrible affair. It provides inaccurate readings. But one day, who we are will be revealed. Because God himself will reveal it. And for a believer, for a Christian, that is our ultimate hope. That the end will reveal our hearts. The end will reveal our lives. And at the end, we'll be truly rewarded with happiness that lasts forever. Better if Job's friends had said, we don't know why you're going through all this, Job. But we know that he who endures to the end will receive a great inheritance. The kind of inheritance that April read for us earlier. Uh, but their system of religion didn't allow it. But Job knew it. And we know it. And so we look. Not just to the things seen. But to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporal. But friends, hold on and trust in Jesus. Because the things unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us have the perspective from heaven and not the perspective that's limited to earthly wisdom. And so, Lord, help us to persevere through pain and suffering and trials uh, knowing that they're not a sign necessarily of our sin nor of your judgment, but are often, Lord, used by you to prepare us uh, for heaven, prepare us to be with you. Lord, help us, Lord, to, be, um, to have our confidence grounded in you and in your uh, redemption and vindication of us. Lord, help us even the rest of today to live as people confident of who we are in Jesus, of our forgiveness in Christ, and so then being able to forgive others even who wronged us. Pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.